0: all right ladies and gentlemen welcome to privacy please i am your host cameron ivy and with me today i have two special guests we have jonathan armstrong and andre bywater with Cordry Compliance. Gentlemen, welcome to Privacy, Please. Hi, thanks very much for having us. Absolutely. So let's let's just go ahead and get into it with both of you. If you want to just, uh, Jonathan, if you want to start off and introduce yourself um, and what you do and kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for that. And thanks for having us on. Uh, so I'm Jonathan Armstrong. I'm with Cordry. We're a niche uh, compliance law firm. We mostly handle work for multinational corporations, across Europe in uh, areas like privacy and data security. And I guess 15 years or so ago, I wrote uh, this book, still available from all good bookshops. In some respects, we've built uh, Cordray around the sort of things uh, that that we were investigating all those years ago. And Andre and I used to work together uh, at another law firm and we focus really on compliance as i've said for multinational corporations for us that's three main things the first is preventing bad things happening so that might be putting policies in place procedures to try and stop data breaches happening for example the second is training So, training people in responding to compliance issues, that might be a data breach academy where we've trained about 400 um, information security professionals and lawyers in how to handle data breaches. And the third area would be intervention. So, if something bad has happened, how do we try and reduce the consequences? We might interface with regulators, typically data protection authorities in Europe on behalf of clients and try and manage uh, that uh, incident to try and stop it becoming uh, a disaster. So in simple terms, that's what we do and we're regulated in uh, England and Wales and we do work uh, on that across Europe. And then Andre? Um,
2: I have nothing else to add to that, <laughs> that's the cake, the full cake, <laughs> piece of cake.
0: Thanks John, okay. thank you both. Well, um, so let me just, before we get into some technical questions and things about, uh, Cordray compliance and, and mm. Brexit, um, let's, let's just kind of talk about both of you and how you kind of got into this realm, how you got into compliance, uh, what drove you there after college or how, how did, what, what's your path? What was that like for you, Jonathan and, and Andre?
1: I suspect it's a different journey for both of us. I was quite techie as a kid. And so, um, uh, for those computer geeks out there, so as I, suppose I uh, learned to program on a on a Commodore PET, and then progressed through the range of Sinclair computers and the Acorn Atom. If anyone collects these uh, items, still. These days. So I was focused, I guess, on programming uh, w- when I was a kid and then uh, became a lawyer, but sort of picked up cases relating to those early days, pre internet days of communications and programming, and then developed that interest into into what I call work. And then um, I think from a compliance perspective, I think you find that other aspects of compliance, bribery and corruption, data breach, et cetera, naturally have a high technology impact to them. And so in the UK, we had our first data privacy legislation in 1984. And I was involved in some of the very early cases, not uh, uh, quite quite that long ago but in the in the uh, late 80s early 90s you started to see uh, cases around data breach etc uh, come to light so I've been handling
2: them uh, ever since really. I was based in Brussels for 14 years and it was probably about then that I started doing a lot of things that at the time weren't called compliance or sometimes the word compliance came up so for example antitrust work doing programs to make sure that companies would uh, comply with antitrust law. And at the same time, I remember when the first piece of EU data protection legislation came out, we started looking at that. And it just all started coming coming together. And as Jonathan said, we 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 our paths crossed earlier. We worked for a different law firm. And we started working together um, on issues where we just came together. I mean, I, I won't go into the details about the case where Jonathan and I came together, <laughs> but um, for reasons of confidentiality, but it was sort of very much what Jonathan was doing with technology work. And what I was doing with kind of regulatory work on chemicals, that that started to come together. And then this opportunity came up where it was all badged as compliance in Cordray and seemed like the great place to be to start and just doing it, calling it that.
0: So you've created the super team. What, Andre, Absolutely. what was that term you called, um, Jonathan? The,
2: the, the occult pope of data protection. <laughs> the occult... uh, I love
0: it. That's the first time I've ever heard that. So, um. and let and let's hope the
1: last. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So let's let's get into a little bit about uh, Cordry. What I think you broke Cordry down in your opening statement. I don't know if you mm. want to touch on that a little bit more, or if you want to kind of break down the history of what we're kind of talking about uh, on this podcast, which is Brexit and the impact plan, and you want to kind of go into that.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think as far as as Brexit's concerned, I think I, I probably won't repeat the Caudry stuff. If anyone wants more information, let us know. Look at the website. I think as far as Brexit is concerned, I think it's fair to say that Andre and I come at this from different perspectives. As as Andre says, he was in Brussels for many years and has, has uh, worked in and with and most of the major EU institutions, I think I would class myself as being slightly more uh, sceptical about the whole uh, uh, European institutions. Although, having said that, um, spoiler alert, I think neither of us are keen on Brexit and both of us, uh, let's just say politely, have our doubts as to whether some of the politicians involved – ever had the plot, let alone were in a position to lose it. But I think Brexit, you know, there is the slightest glimmer of the faintest hope that Brexit might not happen. But I think for most organisations, it's our it's racing certainty. And added to the other things that they've got to think about which are manifold in this uh, time of, of COVID, it looks from what we're being told, at least at this stage, that Brexit will not be postponed, that there will not be concessions. And so organizations just have to add this uh, to the many tasks that they've got on their plate right now.
2: I'm going to play devil's advocate. Um, yeah. I think that's because of uh, the... we Technically, we left the EU on the 31st of January, and we're in what's called the transition period until the end of the year. And we're supposed to, the UK and the EU are supposed to agree a deal for the new relationship between the UK and the EU. And already from the start, from the 1st of February, people were saying the timeline is very, very tight. And then COVID came along, and that's made it even tighter. Right. And if there were to be an extension granted to this current transition period, that has to be agreed by the end of June. Now, the UK government's position is, we don't want an extension, we have to go ahead. But I think but because COVID's happened, it's obviously put a big constraint on the negotiations. I mean, the lead mm. EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, he's, he's got COVID, I don't know whether he's recovered now. And I think that for businesses to have to try and cope with getting out of COVID, which is probably the more challenging issue for them, and at the same time, let's say a deal were agreed, it's going to be a very thin deal. To have to try and deal with that, a new world, I think it's just going to be too difficult. So my, my money will be on, or my one pence, shall I say, will be on uh, the June deadline getting extended. But it will be a really hard thing for the government to swallow. But I think, I think that's what'll happen. But I may have to eat my words when we do the next podcast with you in June.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now, so we're going to give you guys recurring guests. You know, you'll be back on. <laughs> so everybody can hear that now. They're going to be back. And, um, <laughs> le- okay, so that's a good point. Both of you made good points. And I I'm- i have a lot of questions. I really want to dive into those, but I think I'm going it- to save them for a little bit more and just kind of get structural here. Okay, so what does this mean for American companies who are considering conducting business in the UK and, and know about Brexit? Well,
1: I-, I think the first thing that they that's need to... <laughs> Yeah, okay. yeah. And that, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Congratulations.
0: Work from <laughs> <Yes>. home. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, even on BBC News, we welcome small children into uh, into live uh, webcasts. So I'm I'm sure that's the case here. Um, as far as American uh, uh, corporations are concerned. Obviously, the worry that Andre and I both have is this is just one more thing to worry about amongst all the other things. But I think in simple terms, what it means for a lot of U.S. corporations is they've tended to treat Europe as one. So if they have people soft in their system they've tended to bunch uh, employees in europe in in one bucket if they have salesforce running their sales office uh, right. operations they've done that and, and and i think that's one of the challenges that they've got to face that we are going to have different uh, data transfer regimes in place so whilst they've been able to have let's say a brussels based hub deal with HR data across the EU, they're going to need a special measure now in place to uh, transfer data between uh, that Brussels hub and the UK operations, for example. And, and, and what that looks like will, um, will vary on the uh, attitude that regulators take. Uh, as we've said uh, uh, previously, as a very general rule, the UK regulator tends to be somewhat relaxed, EU regulators less so, obviously that may change and regulatory guidance is only guidance. We know that litigation often results in areas like data transfer, the SHREMS litigation over Safe Harbor being one example. Uh, the UK government, I'm sure Andre will, will, will mention, has, has just lost a, a data transfer action itself over the transfer of data to the U.S. So this is something that is being frequently litigated and U.S. corporations will need to work out a plan. Andre, I don't know whether you disagree.
2: Uh, no, for sure. I mean, we, we are in this funny period of this transition period, I mentioned, till the end of the year. And in one sense for this period, it's it's business as usual mm-hmm. in the sense that, if you like, all the substantive privacy obligations like having a, you know being transparent in your privacy policy um, responding to subject access requests or doing data protection impact assessments all that stuff stays in place the bit that is a little bit different is that and now I don't want to get too technical here but we our regulator in the UK the ICO is no longer part of the what's called the one-stop-shop system. Um, The And I think, Jonathan, I do agree on this bit. The one-stop-shop system is very bureaucratic and quite complicated to understand. And even though it's two years into the system of GDPR now, I think it's not fully bedded down yet. The basic idea was that if you're transferring data between different EU countries, you would only have to deal with one regulator, hence the word Mm -hmm. one-stop-shop. But as I say, because technically we left the EU on the 31st of January, we're not part of that. But our regulator is nevertheless, we believe, still taking part in the meetings where maybe one-stop issues are being discussed. We don't know for sure. So there's that sort of slight disjunct there. And I think for American businesses, any businesses, it's a bit difficult to try and get a bit of certainty on some of those issues. And it will all change once, if you like, the transition period's ended. And the big thing that they are talking about now, the EU and the UK, is that the EU is doing what's called the adequacy assessment the UK has to, sorry, the EU has to assess whether the UK has an adequate privacy system. And the idea is if we get that adequacy decision, then we would hope that it's business as usual uh, in the future. But it's a big if.
1: And and to just put some flesh onto those bones, if we take as a pragmatic example, the Marriott uh, investigation into Marriott's data breach, the UK Information Commissioner's Office has been the lead investigator there, it will announce a fine, Um, it's been postponed, there's a notice of intent issued, ballpark 100 million sterling, Uh, that's been postponed, we now expect a final uh, answer, if you like, in June, it could be postponed again, but in the GDPR world, theoretically at least, the UK is the lead investigator across all of the EU. And other regulators within the EU can have input into that, but there's one decision and and one set of um, uh, 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 one regulatory fine paid in a in a post Brexit world. Let's say um, to t- to make it simple, the breach was um, discovered in January 2021. Then, as a minimum, you're likely to have two regulatory authorities involved, may uh, maybe, uh, Ireland, for example, as the lead regulator within the EU and the UK, because, uh, individuals within the UK would have been affected by the breach. And it might be a simple process that the, the Irish and the UK regulators in that scenario work hand in hand and do the investigation together. But it's still likely that, uh, Marriott, in that example, would be paying a regulatory fine to two different authorities. Now, whether they take into account the fact that I've already paid this authority, as we've seen in other regulatory settlements like Airbus and the anti-corruption Context remains to be seen. All of this is unknown territory. But at the very least, there's going to be some duplication of effort and duplication of resources. And American corporations have to get used to dealing with multiple regulators when they've had a short term, you know, less than two years of dealing with only one as their lead authority.
0: That's very informational that you know stuff that I've never heard before and it it kind of strikes a question um in my mind that I want to ask both of you when it, when it comes to companies that are getting breached is it very typical like we're talking big companies like Marriott is it typical that huh. you see there's always you know they get a big hit for millions and millions of dollars to to pay these fines and these fees and regulations And it almost seems like it's kind of like a brush off, like, okay, we can deal with this and continue moving on. Do you think that things are changing um, Mm. today because of data privacy and all that kind of stuff becoming more serious and GDPR and CCPA and all these compliance regulations? Do you think companies are actually going to be kind of waking up now and uh, feeling like they should probably implement better uh, technology and protection instead of thinking, (laughs) oh... You know, we'll just pay the fine and, and keep going
1: I think from my perspective I think definitely has been a toughening up in the uh in, in the regime and we've already seen you know w- more than 200 probably 400-ish um, fines or investigations leading to some sort of uh, result uh, across the EU and many millions of Uh, of uh, euros raised uh, in fines. And I think that uh, we almost used to have a binary situation under the old law that many regulators would either tell somebody to do something or not to do something or fine them. And now we're seeing that regulators don't have to choose. It's not a binary thing anymore. So we've seen cases like uh, uh, one and one in Germany where the regulators have said, you will pay a fine that's substantial, but you'll also do this stuff and get it right. And if you don't, we'll be back again. Uh, we've seen cases like Tim, the uh, um, uh, um, uh, cell phone operator mm-hmm. in Italy, substantial fine, plus a list of 22 remedial actions. So it's important to remember that uh, regulators don't just have the power to fine, they have the power to order organizations to do stuff uh, as well. An example would be Facebook, for example, where you'll remember that they planned to launch their online dating service in Europe. They gave short notice to the Irish regulator. The Irish regulator knocked on their door and asked for a data protection impact assessment. Now, she didn't prohibit them from doing the uh, dating service. But she did say that she was unhappy with their regulatory approach. And they took the view, um, as soon as they had that knock on the door, that they would shelve the launch. And for many organizations, the fact that you've trailed your new offering, you've presumably sold that to advertisers. You've pre-sold this whole gig. And then to say it isn't happening because we didn't get our compliance right or we couldn't persuade the regulator that we've got it right, that is more impactful in some circumstances than the amount of a fine. And we're seeing some regulators get very uh, cute at looking at how they can get the attention of organizations and make them comply.
0: Yeah, it's pretty scary (laughs) when you Mm. think about it. And obviously, you, you mentioned Facebook. And I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, you know, when you have an application like Facebook, as big as it is, mm-hmm. and it's free, how do you think the privacy is going to be on it? It's, it's wide open. And people, I think that opened people's eyes, obviously, when that happened with Cambridge mm-hmm. Analytica. Um, so that, good, good, great point. That was a great point. Can I, that.
2: Can I also add another point to this, yeah. which is that mm. the other impact we've seen. Um, as Jonathan said, we've both been dealing with privacy issues for many years, pre-GDPR well was that in the past when companies were buying and selling as part Mm. of the due diligence process data protection was a little bit down the list but now with gdpr that's all changed and companies are much more doing much more work on their due diligence looking at privacy really getting into the detail of you know what did your policy look Mm. like back then What, what have you been doing about cookies and what about your data transfers and it's really getting so that's where companies are sort of really picking up on these issues as well. The impact, which you don't really read about, but um, it believe we, from our experience, believe us, it's there.
0: Yeah, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> you guys it. Um, <laughs> so what's the status of the UK privacy laws based on EU directives, such as the privacy and electronic communications regulations?
2: Yeah, or PICA, as we call it. It's, it that's the one that deals with things like cookies, mainly but also like marketing, direct marketing, and all those horrible issues that people have had with consent and unsubscribe and all that kind of stuff. Well, of course, that that still exists. That's not been changed by the UK um, leaving the EU. Perhaps, again, an issue we do have, though, is even though we've got the same rules, we've seen already with cookies, with a lot of the guidance that's come out from different regulators, that they take wildly different approaches like if you look at the stuff from spain france the uk and the german regulators you'll all see that they say different things about like analytics cookies whether you need consent or not so already at that level mm-hmm. even though as i say we've got the same law people are you know taking regulators are taking a different approach now we are supposed to have this new e privacy set of rules um, which were supposed to have come in they were supposed to have been agreed and then come in place the same time as GDPR, as the EU's been trying to do an upgrade of that e-privacy legislation. that stalled, and last December, basically all the talks broke down. They've oh. restarted that, um, but we, we're out the EU now, so what will the UK's position be when, if and when the EU adopts these new rules? Maybe the UK will follow, decide off its own back to follow some of it, maybe they'll do something different. So whilst it's business as usual in one sense now, that will that will change at some point.
0: So what, what does that look like on the status of uh, the Privacy Shield in the UK?
2: I think that
1: whole thing is, is pretty intriguing, and I suppose we followed it for many years. Uh, I was really interested in the sort of history behind uh, Max Schrems, the uh, then Austrian law student who brought uh, the case initially. And... M- Many people on the on the podcast will remember that Shrems was behind the action that struck down Safe Harbor, the predecessor of uh, Privacy Shield, and we've got a number of challenges ongoing to uh, Privacy Shield currently, we're awaiting. A judgment from the uh, European Court. We've already had an a, an, a provisional uh, opinion from the uh, Advocate General, who's a sort of court-appointed uh, lawyer, and um, we. But we don't know for definite what the result of the challenge will be. Um, there's an interview uh, that I did with Max Schrems on our website, where I think he called. Uh, privacy shield, safe harbour with flowers on it, and it was a similar scheme, really, and challengeable for the same reasons as safe harbour. Now, obviously, it'll be a differently, a, a different, uh, differently constituted court, but the difficulties remain really, and they're um, in some respects possibly influenced by Brexit. So, if um, the, the UK's current intention is that. Uh, the UK will have, if you like, a mirror scheme to the EU-US privacy shield. And there's precedent for that with Switzerland. And Switzerland, I'm simplifying, but more or less cut and paste the EU-US deal. There's a Swiss-US privacy shield. And the UK's intention is effectively to follow the Swiss model. Um, Now, of course, if EU-US privacy shield falls... That doesn't necessarily mean that the U.K. uh, U.S. privacy shield would fall, necessarily. In Switzerland, there was a period of some confusion in that the regulator said, yep, the EU decisions aren't binding on Switzerland, but we'll assume they are. And my understanding is that there was some political pressure brought to bear and the Swiss authorities said, yeah, let's not be too hasty. Let's see if we can find time to to, to, to put something else in place. So I think the issue is that we're headed, uh, unfortunately, for a period of uncertainty because Privacy Shield itself is uncertain, but also how data transfer will pan out uh, is uncertain as well. And, and I think we've seen... Uh, in the case that uh, Andre's just blogged about on our website uh, that the UK courts are prepared to look into uh, data transfer issues as well. So even if the UK, which is the current intention, comes out of the, the jurisdiction, if you like, of the European courts, then the UK courts are still interested in data transfer issues and making sure that all of that's done properly. So I think the long and short is a period of uncertainty. If you're a U.S. corporation that is uh, receiving data from the EU, particularly from employees, but from customers as well, look at a plan B. Look at having an alternate system of legitimizing that. The, that's probably likely to be what's called standard contractual clauses. There's a challenge to them as well uh, as part of this whole uh uh, omnibus uh, set of litigations so they're not guaranteed uh, to last forever you could look at things like binding corporate rules which I think in the long term will be the answer to uh, uh, to this issue but I think data transfer is a is a situation with quite a lot of complexity can I add another
2: issue to that about Please, say, I definitely agree data transfers is probably the number one issue second issue that, although the regulators pay attention to it, perhaps organizations are paying less attention to, is what's called the data representative. It's not the DPO, not the data protection officer. But as you may know, currently under GDPR, let's say you're a US business, maybe have no subsidiaries, no offices in anywhere in the EU, but you are either monitoring the behavior of EU citizens or people in the EU, or you're... Basically, you're selling to them, like through your website.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In theory, well, it's theory. I say under GDPR, it says that you are supposed to appoint a representative in the EU. So someone who will be your interface with the regulators. Okay. Um, we're aware of some people who've done that, but I think many are not doing that. Mm. That's just for GDPR. Yeah. We're now going to have the same situation between the UK and the EU. So if you're in the UK... And you're not anywhere else in the EU, but you're monitoring behavior, selling and so on. You will have to appoint a representative in the EU, and it'll be the other way around as well. Um, but as I say, e- even under the current situation, on the GDPR, if you're a US company and you're doing that and you're just based in the US, you're supposed to appoint a representative. And I say it's just going to get more complicated with the UK situation and Brexit.
0: That's a good point, and,
2: and 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 why this matters, Cam, is that
0: um,
1: is that you know the US's greatest exports to the EU, uh, uh, KFC, McDonald's, milkshakes. We add to that. <laughs> we add to that list uh, class action litigation. Yeah, and and uh, there is a rising tide of litigation over data privacy. And data security in the EU. And and what would seem to be minor things like the failure to appoint a data protection representative, these minor details are seized on by plaintiff lawyers who want to show a pattern of disregard for regulatory requirements.
0: Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Now a question came up into my mind when both of you were talking, and it, I don't know if this is a me just being, you know, not very much of a what is it, a cult pulp? <laughs> 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 but but um, I was curious um, for a company. Obviously, we deal with a lot of companies. We're we're in the Americas, and um, you guys got the UK covered. And the, um, I was curious is there a, is there any different regulations or laws? Um, compared to a company that is based in America and then does business in the UK, vice versa, with a business that's in UK and that does business in in uh, America, is there any difference or anything, or is it pretty much the same?
1: Well, the jurisdiction requirements on under GDPR are, are different, if if, okay. if that helps. So, um, so that is a whole complicated piece. But basically, if I'm a US corporation. I'm within GDPR if I've got a presence in the EU, or I'm offering goods and services, or I'm monitoring people within the EU. And we don't have any litigation over this yet, to my knowledge. Um, We do have uh, issues uh, in the Google France case, for example, at looking at uh, things like jurisdictional requirements, but there's a lot of complexity to that, and there's also a lot of nonsense. Frankly, people saying, "Oh, it has to be EU citizens, etc., etc." Yeah. That 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 isn't in the in, in the legislation itself. And as Andre says, in some respects, GDPR can be more onerous for US corporations because of um, the the fact that they have to appoint a data protection representative, an organization within the EU isn't subject to that requirement. And oftentimes, organizations can try and avoid GDPR in ways that actually put them right in the horns of GDPR. So to give you one example, uh, in January, I was in uh, New York. I happened to try and look uh, for my um, for my sins at a, a Long Island um, uh, newspaper website. And even though I'm doing it on my cell phone in New York, it says, aha, um, this is coming through an EU cell phone carrier. And you're not allowed to look at our website because we don't want to comply with GDPR. Well, here's the thing. By monitoring the fact that I'm in the EU, that puts them full square into GDPR, where arguably they wouldn't have been in, but for that monitoring. So a lot of people aren't thinking through the jurisdictional requirements properly, I think.
0: Uh, thank you for explaining that, because I think it helps the listeners here as well, um, and myself. <clears throat> so let's, let's talk about, obviously, what's going on right now, what's been going on with COVID and everybody having to work from home. And how has uh-huh. that changed for both of you? With your customers, your clients, uh, your company, and your personal life.
1: It's the first time I've seen Andre in a shirt for about
2: three weeks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, true. He's got the shirt, true. but does he have the pants?
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> That's, I, yeah. Won't, I won't close the camera cover. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I suppose on a slightly more serious note, uh, it has been a really challenging time for a lot of clients. Particularly, y- y- you know, moving large numbers of people to work from home environment, or in, or increasing the frequency of home working for people who've already been working from home, is it- it is a challenging situation for many of them. Mm-hmm. And you've got to think through all sorts of. Ramifications, you know, from our perspective. I mean, first of all, some employers have been trying to monitor employee health. Look at trips, for example, where have employees been? Should we tell them to stay at home before uh, lockdown commenced? All of that is fairly heavily regulated. Many of them are using special applications to monitor movement, etc. That's uh, heavily regulated. You have to do a data protection impact assessment for that. If you look in the working uh, from home environment, you know, organizations have to make sure that the security in the home environment and in transit between home uh, and work or vice versa, uh, that the data is secured in transit. We've had a Danish case on that recently. We've had quite a few UK cases on that. Now, that might be as simple if I have a laptop and a briefcase to make sure that I have a padlock on my briefcase. It might be making sure that I'm using a secure VPN and Pulse Secure, some setting like that to protect the home environment the same as, it, uh, as if it's the corporate environment. But for many organizations, they face more difficult challenges. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, at an organization where they only had kit for one fifth of their staff. So, So for a fifth of the people, that's sort of okay. They're set up at home. But for others, they're having to do things like um, use their own uh, computer, but they're being given a slot to dial into the VPN because the organization also doesn't have enough VPN licenses and enough capacity back at the uh, back at the ranch to deal with remote workers so people are being told you've got a three hour you've got a three hour slot and you will be online between 10 a.m and 1 p.m then you've got to be off by uh, 1 p.m because uh, Steve in accounts is is using your <laughs> license at 1 pm or whatever so, so wow. organizations are finding all sorts of challenges like that. Now, the good news is, of course, that we have a system to, to look at these risks called a data protection impact assessment. And the good news is that there's been some unity amongst regulators, I think accidental rather than deliberate. So guess what? A data protection impact assessment does the job under, um, under EU uh, regulations Drop off the D, a privacy impact assessment, an almost identical process does the job in Australia. So you can uh, you can you can sort of make once distribute your compliance efforts if you do it uh, correctly. And the other good news is many organisations have stepped up to the plate by offering free software as well, you being one, Trend, Cisco, people like that, who've said, look, we realize that these are different circumstances. We will help you protect your working from home workforce. But there are challenges for many people, you know, kids running in the background, dogs trying to eat uh, eat, eat off your table whilst you're working. I can relate. Really- <laughs> yeah, particularly people in... Um, in, in, in uh, flat shares, for example, who, who you know, I heard a story that um, there's uh, three people in a flat share. One of them's a, a merchant banker still working on deals. And he's had to agree the third of the dining room table that he will have, which is, you know, the ex-bank working environment because <laughs> his employers have told him he's got to petition off a place to work. All he can do is use, you know masking tape to divide the table into three. You know, people are finding all sorts of extraordinary solutions. But the difficulty is that compliance efforts today are always judged with the benefit of hindsight in three years' time, four years' time. So, we'll be investigating data breaches in three years' time that happened during this extraordinary time. And I think my worry is that Class action lawyers, regulators, courts, human nature is that we forget how bad it was at the time and how much of a panic it was. And people will be saying, you know, just as we've had in the political environment, we've had political leaders say, Mm, this virus, it isn't going to be a big thing. And they're now trying to rewrite history by saying, I told you it was a big thing. Well, we find that in reverse with regulators as well. Even regulators who are being sympathetic now in three years' time might be saying things like, you let them work from home, you let them use... um, uh, their website. home antivirus, yeah, and their home mm-hmm. antivirus backs stuff up into the cloud. you knew that everybody knew that. Why did you allow them to still use their home virus? Why did you allow these sensitive files to be uploaded in the cloud and hindsight is a wonderful thing, but we 've got to we 've got to understand that we 've got to have a proper process for looking at risk, analyzing it, reducing it, removing it where we can. And the good news is, as I say, there's a process to do that and there are the the software out there
0: that can help with that journey. Man, that was, that was really good. Thank you for getting into that.
2: There are lots of, there are lots of small things people can do as well. You know, like, um, just people, you can do quick training for people, um, Mm -hmm. like the way they work in the office, like you have a clean desk policy in the office, Mm -hmm. just do the same thing at home. And, if you've got a safe, maybe you've got to put some things in your safe, or, as Jonathan said, you have a lock. There are actually a lot of really simple things that people can do to make sure that there are no data breaches. So there is a level at which you know people shouldn't be frightened and scared and thinking everything's going to be all different yeah. now. There are lots yeah. of little things like that that they can do to keep data safe and avoid, as Jonathan said in the future, suddenly, Years later, there's um, you know, an investigation or there's a due diligence that's done and suddenly they find out, oh, my God, they did what? They did that? <laughs> All that kind of stuff. So, yeah.
0: It's going to happen. You know it is. There's going to be plenty of companies. There's going to be, oh, man. It's it's going to be interesting to see, you know, expe- especially since there's supposed to be a second wave in the winter because mm. um, this could be… Is that what
2: they're talking about in the U.S. now, is it? Yeah. And it's right. to, they're okay.
0: saying it's supposed to be worse, but, uh, you know, I oh, we'll see. Yeah. It's it's going to be interesting to see how companies handle it. It seems like a lot of companies over here are handling handling things, you know, in a positive way and just trying to keep their companies connected with video yeah. conferencing and, and and making sure that they have the right security measures in place if they didn't already. Um, hopefully, they are because if not, uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna backfire like you were saying mm. down the road. Just how's how are things been with your families and? Uh, Everything like everything is positive. You guys are good. Family's good.
1: Uh, we've had a, a a scare in our our family, but uh, thankfully things seem to be uh, on the mend. I think it has been, uh, yeah, frightening environment for for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that um, uh, there's we've had particular issues in the in the UK. Without getting too political, with um, some of the guidance not being as clear as it uh, could have been hampered in part, of course, by our uh, prime minister also uh, being uh, a patient rather than a, a leader. Yep. And, um, and and you know, we, we, we can't underestimate the challenges, I think. I think uh, from my perspective, I think I've been amazed by the uh, resilience that clients have shown, the can-do attitude that they've shown. Nobody's trying to uh, take, take that away at all. People have worked very hard. As Andre says, oftentimes uh, simple things make a lot of difference. Yeah. You know to give you just one example, we had one of our biggest data breaches post GDPR was literally a guy working from home, in, you know in normal times, in uh, a conservatory to the back of his house, hot day conservatory window open. Uh, his wife came to the front door I think he went to open the door for his wife. somebody came into the conservatory and took his laptop um, oh, wow. so so there are uh, regrettably opportunists around who are taking this time to exploit uh, weaknesses. We've seen that in the area of ransomware particularly where unforgivable criminals are exploiting the current situation. They're relying on the fact that people are uh, seeing unusual emails anyway, so they're more likely to click. They're relying on the fact that their co-workers aren't there, so they can't say, should I be clicking on this cam? Is it okay? That communication, uh, there's a lack of communication there. And, and they're also sort of... Many organizations aren't getting those regular compliance messages out to people. And uh, and, and it seems that ransomware particularly is um, going through the roof as a result. So as Andre said, simple things, simple training, 10 top things for you to think about when working from home. Stuff like that is worth its weight in gold at this time. Yeah. And Andre, you've had an egg shortage in other news. <laughs> oh, we've maybe lost Andre. Maybe no, he's, no, he's, no, he's come back, back again. Guys. He's come I'll back with my eggs. Shirt back on. on. <laughs> oh, my shirt. We've got him. So, yeah. We the were just short. talking about the Kent egg shortage. No omelets. Yeah, then, no well omelets that's,
0: for Andre. That's,
2: no, exactly. i just have to eat quail's eggs again. What can I say? <laughs> um, no, Mo, that's kind of you to ask. And I hope your family's okay, but mine's okay. But, yeah, it's just been some food issues because my parents are elderly and so they have to order online. And when you order online, not everything comes. Right. So I've got to go out there in my World War II gas mask and, you know, fight for those eggs. But no, everything's <laughs> fine. And I hope your family's okay as well where you are.
0: Yeah, thank you for asking. Everything's been good. You know, just it's it really opens up your eyes. And it, it's interesting to see mm-hmm. how companies are handling and how your own company handles it. And it's it makes you proud to be a part of that positivity and yeah. just staying together. I think... uh it's a challenge everywhere, but um, it's interesting to hear it from your end. Obviously, in the UK, um, and not to get political, like you were saying, Jonathan. But you know, same thing on our side. We we didn't really necessarily have that leadership in the beginning around this whole thing, and I think it uh, it definitely blew up in in our faces too. On another topic, back to back to data privacy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think I think uh, Gabe Gabe has joined us, and I'm not sure if he wants to chime in with any questions he had for you guys before I, uh, I asked a couple of my last questions. Uh, Gabe, thanks. Thanks for joining. I appreciate uh, you gentlemen coming on.
2: Um, I'm just going to go ahead and mess up your whole flow here, Cameron. So you might want to <laughs> edit <all> it. <this. laughs> no, I love it. I, I loved you wanted to come on and just thank you gentlemen for, for joining us. Uh, so I, I, again, I didn't, I didn't want to interrupt the flow here. Uh, you're, you're in good hands with cam say hello. And I I genuinely don't have any direct questions otherwise. This is uh, a surprise appearance. Excellent.
0: Makes it easier. (laughs) So uh, thank you. So I was going to ask you uh, if there was anything else that you wanted our listeners and readers to know about Brexit, anything that we didn't talk about or anything that we didn't talk about in general, even if it's not about Brexit.
2: Well, with Brexit, there are so many other issues. You know, once, well, if we get, if we get, we're we're still at risk of having a no deal again. I think that's a real risk, and that would be very, very problematic. And even if we get a deal, I think it's only going to be the first of many other deals Mm. Um, because the the, the narrow scope they have now will focus on certain issues, including data protection. Um, But I think we will be in a situation like Switzerland is with the EU, where they negotiate bilaterally, issue by issue, and the Swiss and the EU have, I don't know what it is, 50, 60-odd, different agreements and it'll just never go away it'll just keep going on and on it'll be okay what are we going to do this year well we're going to talk about aircraft slots okay and then the next year it's about packaging and labeling it's just going to go on and i and i fear that my concern is that you may get like us companies who just get so annoyed by it and they think well we just don't want to go to the uk because this is just going to go on forever And that's one of my big concerns from a sort of uk us perspective
0: anything on your end jonathan no, I I mean,
1: I think it just is a challenge, and in some respects, it's an unnecessary challenge. Um, and I think that there are obviously ramifications for corporations caused by Brexit that will affect the remainder EU as well. You know, for example, I know I've spoken uh, to regulators in the data protection uh, arena who who have said on a number of occasions one of their worries is that as you know gdpr is going through a sort of almost like a regeneration process or a review process there are some in europe who think that gdpr is too light and is too lenient and we've always had this system where the uk was one of the um more pro business countries that gave a strong voice for corporations in those debates. And I've spoken to some regulators who are very fearful of the direction of, uh, of data protection regulation in the remaining EU, because the UK's voice of reason, as they perceive it, won't be there around the table. And so I think we're going to see definitely a... A, a much uh, more pro-consumer uh, revision to GDPR when it eventually gets uh, gets changed. So the costs of compliance, whether or not you're in the UK, the costs of compliance will go up when you deal with the EU. I think it will be a more challenging place to do business going forward.
0: It certainly will be, but I, I think we're coming at the end here. Um, not okay. sure if you guys want to add anything else, but... I just want to say thank you so much for everything for being on here for taking the time with us, and I really hope that uh, we can continue a, a further conversation. I think you mentioned something around June.
2: Yeah, Andre? sometime in the summer would be great. Absolutely, have you got a date? You guys are. Already I'm, I don't think partner. we're going to be going away on summer holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's <that's> unlikely. <laughs> awesome. So it'll just be endless podcasts and webinars.
0: Hey, that's it. Seems like that's the world, anyways. Now, I, I'll be honest with you: if I have to do this twenty-four-seven every week, uh, my my head might explode with all the technology. <laughs> I, need some, I need some face-to-face. I like face-to-face. Okay, I'm okay with this as well. Um, okay. But thank you, um, gentlemen, yeah. so much. And pleasure. Um, is there anywhere that uh, anyone can see you guys on social media? If you're on social media, or if you do you speak at any events, um, whenever that starts to happen again in public, is there anywhere that people can follow you and that kind of thing?
1: I think we don't know when normal resumes. In the meantime, we've a YouTube channel, which is just uh um you can get that at bit.ly dot slash T V. Uh, Caudry's on Twitter at Caudry I'm on Twitter at Armstrong J P. You're at Andre Bywater, aren't you, Andre? I am indeed. And um <laughs> Yeah, you can if you google our names I'm sure you'll find us. I'm yeah. not the one that murdered the person in South Shields. <laughs> that was my next question.
0: So, <laughs> right. so we're good. We're good. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> awesome. I really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. Okay. And uh like we, um we will see you guys next time. Thank you guys for for, uh, excellent. for being
1: on. I'll off, you. I'll I'll, Cheers. I'll go off and walk the dog.
0: Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's his name? We can't leave without knowing that. uh, Big Dog. Oh, just Dog, okay. Original. Real creative, yeah. This is coming, Gabe, this is coming from the occult pulp.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I appreciate it. We'll have to send you guys a couple of poochies from from our dog pack. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, now I can see you. Hi there.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks. All right. No, them.
1: this has been fun. Thanks for the invitation. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Thank That's, you.
0: Yeah. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Coming okay. on. Take okay. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.